Hey everybody, Dr. Josh Axe here. Welcome to the show. This week we have Dr. Amy Shaw. We're gonna be talking about everything from fasting, gut health, the brain body connection, and a whole lot more. And Dr. Amy, wanna say welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Josh. Well, I know you're a double board certified physician. You're an expert in, in energy and in fasting, gut health, hormones, and a whole lot of other things. And I know you've been featured on so many different you know, TV programs and online. And you know, I was on your website and I was so impressed with some of your writings on fasting and energy that anyways, I wanted to have you on the show and, and have you share today. And just for starters, uh, you know, we were talking, talking about before uh, you know, you're in Scottsdale and, you know, and I'm in Nashville and right now it's been pretty hot here lately. Uh, so, so I'm curious, you know, one of the things like, like, what do you, like, what, what do you love to do um, in terms of just like activities? I know Scottsdale is a pretty active community. My wife and I are pretty active. Like, what, what do you love to do to stay active? I think I've seen some pictures and stuff that you've posted on Instagram in the past. And I think I would say we're very similar in that, I'm an outdoor exercise fanatic or just exercise movement fanatic in general. If I'm not seeing patients or I'm not doing this with you or writing, I will be moving. And I wish that health was all about exercise because I would um, be the pinnacle of health. But, you know, there's so many factors that go into it. And I actually was like, for a while, I was overdoing it. And it's something I talk about in my book uh, where, you know, more is not better when it comes to exercise, fasting, you know, all of those things. Um, there is a time and a place and you have to focus on recovery. Uh, but yeah, you'll find me, um, you know, lately I've been really into nature based exercises when the weather allows, like I'll do an early morning jog or walk and I'll do a hit workout, uh, before work, uh, a few days a week or almost every day uh, a week I do yoga. Um, Basically, I just came back, I was, was telling you, I just came back from a very active wellness vacation, where um, my husband, so he's a physician too, and for many years, followed the typical MD route of not really working on his nutrition or wellness at all. And he found himself in a place of burnout and weight gain of about 30 pounds. He was able to actually lose that plus more. I think he's lost 50 pounds in the last like two years and wow. really regained his energy and strength and focus and um, zest for life. And I think that's the main thing I want to, I, I try to focus on. It's like the energy, it's the feeling of purpose. It's the connection, all that comes when you improve your gut health. And, you know, the weight is just like a side effect of that. Um, so now we're both really active. And so it's really fun to, um, yeah, spend time, uh, doing active things. Well, I know we were talking about St. Lucia and I shared with you that my wife, Chelsea and I, that's where we did our honeymoon and that we just love St. Lucia, you know, that the beach there, the batons, we went and did a zip line. We went there and we did a volcanic mud bath and, um, that. you know, sort of as it, it was, you know, we absolutely loved it. And I know that that's a great, you know, a great Island to be very active on a great place to go. Uh, and connect and be like, like I said, be, you know, you know, snor we went snorkeling too. That was another thing we love to do. I uh, do there. So I think activity is so key. You know, the other thing I think about being active is I remember an article came out, this was about 15 years ago now or so where it said, you know, sitting, uh, is the equivalent to, you know, smoking cigarettes, you know, it's the new smoking. And so just that inactivity. And so moving is so important. I think the act of moving, whether it's going on a walk every single day, 
or just going out in your own backyard and just what, you know, just, just standing or, and, and, or moving a little bit there or exercising. It's just important to not be sitting all day. You know, when you're working with patients, I know that the other thing I loved about your background, by the way, I love that you have this, you know, you, you do have a traditional medical training, you're double board, board certified, but also you have this nutrition training where you've trained to be a nutritionist and learned all these things as well. But, and I want to get into that here in just a minute and get into all the other stuff, but, but how much do you work with clients on their lifestyle, on moving, on not sitting in front of a desk? Ask on, on their emotions, on sleep, and some of these other factors uh, outside of nutrition regarding health. Josh, I always bring up the example of longevity. So when you look at the longest living people in the world, you know, people who are living the blue zones across um, the world, th these are places that have the most number of centenarians, people over the age of 100 and are healthy and active. They're not going to the gym, uh, you know, one hour a day. That's not necessarily the exercise that they're doing. Now, they are moving a lot. And so what I try to emphasize to people I work with is that it's not about just going to the gym and finishing your workout and then sitting at a desk all day, which is a lot of us, you know, we think we're doing a great job. And then we just end up being sedentary. It's about adding in movement to your entire day. And even if that didn't mean a gym session, that could mean just going for a walk, uh, you know, after a meal or before a meal and really blunts insulin sensitivity and could really improve your health in so many different ways. And so I really focus on, you know, movement in general. I think that was somewhere, something that I didn't know, um, even as a physician and a nutritionist, like I thought it was all about the exercise and the calories you burned during exercise, but I realized, no, it's actually about the timing. It's about moving. It's about keeping yourself active, especially around meal times and not really just sitting around. You know, one of the things, Dr. I mean, and again, I, I'm with you, like for, for my wife and I, like, we love being active and there's something, if, if I don't, it's, it's, it's some, if I don't move for one day, I think my body's okay. But if it goes to be a second day or a third day, yeah, I, I feel lethargic. I feel I just don't feel good. I just, again, lethargic is one of the best words I can describe. My energy's down. I kind of feel, I just don't feel, I can kind of feel it in my joints too. I just, my whole body starts to feel it. And I think a lot of people don't realize how bad they're feeling because they're not moving on a regular basis. So for me, just movement has been such a part of my life. And I just notice so much when I don't do it. I think, I think it is so important when you're, when, 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 when you're looking at that, I'm curious, you know, it, have you, have you had a background in, 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 uh, in exercise and movement? I mean, did you grow up playing sports? Did you learn things that way? Or because that's how a lot of times I find those people still try and stay fairly active maybe versus somebody who didn't. Uh, yeah. So funny story. My parents are immigrants from India and I was born there actually also. And we came here when I was about five and around the age of seven, my dad picked up tennis and um, he needed a partner. So literally every single day, from the time I was seven to the time I was like in high school, I would go and play tennis with him. Um, and at some point, you know, as I got older, I got good enough to beat him and then started to play on my own. And it was a really great way to stay active. And I didn't realize it back then, but it's a great life sport. I also did, um, I, I like to run. So I did a little bit of track and field, but I did lacrosse as well. The lacrosse for some people who don't know, it's like this old Native American game where you carry these sticks with like baskets on them. And then it's like soccer where you try to get a goal. Um, and both, uh, you know, sports in my high school and the where I grew up in New York 
was like the pinnacle. I mean, every single person in my school had was playing some kind of sport. And so it was a huge part of my life. And I think that it taught me skills of teamwork and um, of resilience that um, I really, you know, I have both my kids in sports because of that, because I think that the stoic nature, um, life throws a lot of curveballs at you. And I remember with tennis, um, I would make it so my coach would not know if I was up by, you know, five games, or if I was down by five games, and I would try to stay completely even. And that's helped me so much in life. And it's something I teach my kids about, you know, there's going to be curveballs at you, you're going to go through crazy things in your life, but you really have to learn that mental strength and staying calm during the storm, because it's going to help you make better decisions in life. I love that. So good. You know, one of the things I always love asking people who have your background is background in this Western medicine and, and early training, but then sort of, you know, maybe have an epiphany and then start moving over and saying, no, I think food is medicine is the answer and lifestyle and mindset medicine. These are the things people need to learn about. How, how did you make that shift? When you went into medical school, did you say to yourself, you know what? I know that medicine isn't the only answer, but I'm getting my degree or, or, or did you get out and practice and realize this isn't working and nutrition's important? Like, like what, what was your process of going from being, you know, traditional medicine to now teaching about food as medicine? Yeah. Um, that's such a great question. So wellness and nutrition was not in vogue. Um, when I graduated college, in fact, nutrition was kind of completely separate from medical training. And it, it almost was like, I was, a artist coming into medical school, like everybody else had like biochemistry and biology backgrounds. And it gave me a unique take on, um, on medicine in general, but that time, and you know, things are slowly changing, Josh, but at that time, nutrition was not even a part of our curriculum. It was like this very a mini subject in, um, you know, for a couple of days and that's all we learned. And like I, I explained to you, I met my husband in medical school and all of us were eating poorly. We were sleeping poorly. We're living these crazy lives and really didn't learn much about how to eat right and live right. And of course, if you don't know, and you're not doing it, how the heck are you going to teach patients how to do that? Um, so we all can't went out into practice with like this terrible eating and sleeping and living habits, because that was, um, you know, what we learned um, to survive with. And then um, we went out into the real world. And I realized that my interest was not welcome in a lot of these high academic institutions. Like I did, I did my internal medicine at the Harvard hospitals and then immunology allergy at Columbia hospitals. And as they were amazing training programs, but they did not want to hear about nutrition and medicine. It was kind of a very fringe topic. Yep. Um, so uh, basically I went out into practice thinking, okay, when I get out in practice, I'm going to do what I want to do. And of course, day one, I got to the clinic and I had a panel of like 16 patients on day one. And all of them were looking for, um, solutions, uh, medical solutions, because they had been referred by a set of doctors who said, Hey, we know someone that's coming in that's new and she's going to do, you know, allergy, immunology, gut health. And I found myself on this Western medicine path 
And I couldn't get out because I had already like locked myself into this practice. And so it wasn't until a few years later where I was like, I'm done with my training. I've done everything to get to this point, yet I'm not practicing in the way that I want. And I loved my patients and I loved my, uh, you know, co-physicians and the people who were referring patients to me. But I was like, I need to do something else. There's got to be something else uh, out there that I could do. But at that time, you know, internet was new. There wasn't a lot of telemedicine going on. Um, and so I decided to write for fun, just, um, you know, blog about my experiences in nutrition and medicine. And I started to submit those blogs as kind of a artistic, um, like side hobby to help me stay, um, to help me with burnout and to help me with um, not feeling like I was putting my skills to waste. And I would love to do the research for the articles and I would submit them to various places, especially Mind Body Green at that time was just accepting, um, you know, submissions from random people. And they started publishing my stuff. And I started to get in this groove of like, seeing patients and writing right after seeing patients or before seeing patients. And then um, slowly but surely, uh, I entered the kind of wellness realm uh, through a very very strange route. Wow. You know, I, 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 uh, you know, it's interesting because I I hear this a lot from other physicians who have taken a similar path that you have is that just how resistant the medical establishment has been to nutrition. And, and, and one is it makes sense. I mean, what's so interesting is I think for a while people thought, well, that sounds like a conspiracy. It's not a conspiracy that pharmaceutical companies profit off of pharmaceuticals, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and so, so how would it benefit them if they're bringing in nutrition into medical schools, which who's funding a lot of these medical schools and a lot of the doctors, it just, it doesn't make any sense. And so anyways, I think that, you know, I, I think just people always have to see through that lens and remember that. And then even still today, if you look at a, the traditional medical curriculum in most schools, not to say there's not a few, cause there's a few, I think university of Arizona, university of Maryland, there are a few where they are teaching some nutrition now, but the majority still have zero hours. There are a few outliers, but the majority still have zero hours. So it's kind of crazy. How would a medical doctor know about nutrition when they get zero hours versus someone like yourself, you research, you read the medical journals, you study. It really has to take a doctor that sort of goes above and beyond for their patients and learning on their own you know, in order to really treat, treat this way. So anyways, I applaud you being able to really go get outside of the box, do everything you can. And I can tell this just, you know, you, you're doing this for your patients, you're doing this for your family. And so anyways, I love that you go the extra mile to really help your patients in that way. With that being said, I love some of the tactics that you have, you have uh, used with your patients. One of those is not eating at all right? It's mm -hmm. fasting. Talk to us about fasting. And also here's another thing I hear with fasting is, is that if, so, especially if somebody hasn't done it before, it seems like this daunting task, like it is like climbing Mount Everest. So share with me, how do you get your patients to fast? What are some of the results you've seen? And is it as hard as everyone thinks, or is there a certain type of fasting you recommend over others that maybe people can do long-term? Absolutely. Fasting can mean fasting for three to five days, or it can mean fasting overnight. Um, I equate it to exercise. We call it exercise, but there's a very big difference between running a marathon and walking around the block, but that's all considered exercise. And same with intermittent fasting. Intermittent fasting is such a un underutilized tool. 
and partially because we have a food addiction in our Western world. I mean, most people who are logging in their food intake, when they followed lots of Americans, they found that most Americans are eating 16, 15 to 16 hours a day. That means that they are just stopping to sleep or barely sleep. And then uh, so they're eating or drinking wine or eating something, chocolate, whatever, till the very moment they go to bed. And then as soon as they roll out of bed, they're having their first meal, uh, whether it's a shake or a banana or even like, like something healthy like that. Or, or, you know, yeah, or, yeah. You, you named all the healthy things versus or, uh, orange juice and bagels and um, donuts, um, yep. which, uh, you know, this, this is what we learned in medical school. Like we, in, in, uh, we would even in residency. So I was at the, in Boston, like I mentioned, and they would have donuts and co- at this coffee machine that was like, um, like pre-filled with all the flavors or whatever. And I would have one of those like mocha drinks, which was probably 40 grams of sugar. And then I would have a donut or bagel as my breakfast. And that would be like super early in the morning. So what we're finding is that it's not about fasting for three to five days, which is amazing if you want to go there, but it's like running a marathon. Not everyone wants to run a marathon, should run a marathon, can run a marathon, but it's one very advanced version of exercise um, or triathlon. We could, you know, interchange whatever it is, um, uh, extreme exercise. Um, But there's a simple thing that a lot of people are leaving on the table. Um, And it's, you know, I, I blame us as doctors and, you know, leaders in the field that we don't even talk about this. It's very simple. It's overnight fasting. It's like time restricted eating is the medical um, term for it. If you search the journals, it's basically going back to evolutionary times and saying, Hey, you know, before refrigerators, microwaves and 24 hour drive-throughs, how were we eating? And why does that make sense? If so, um, you know, should we be changing that or should we be adopting that. So if you look at it uh, before we had technology, if you even go way back to hunter gatherer societies, you look at them and they're not eating a lot after sundown. I mean, you couldn't, there was not a light, there was not, you know, you maybe had a fire, but you weren't eating much after sundown and two to three hours before bed, mostly they ate nothing at all. Um, and then in the morning they weren't rolling out of bed and like having their first, um, you know, bagel they would gather, hunt, whatever, you know, gather with the family and they would eat kind of later in the morning. Um, it would still be morning. You know, it's not like they would be fasting for, uh, we think, you know, many, many hours, but it's really evolutionarily sound way. And what it seems like it's actually biologically matching what our body's doing. So we work on circadian rhythms, which is light and dark. So our genes, 80% of our genes have a circadian pattern. Circadian rhythms are the 24 hour cycle. Um, that's, you know, 12 hours light, 12 hours dark, or roughly, um, uh, there, um, around there. And we realize now through the research that our biology matches circadian rhythms. And we now know that it's not that our gut is um, sleeping overnight, just like our brain is not really sleeping. It's doing memory consolidation. It's repairing, it's renewing. Same thing with our gut. Overnight, it switches to repair and renewal and turns down the digestion uh, processes. 
So when you sit down to have a huge meal at midnight, um, what you're doing is you're working against your biology. And so you'll see huge swings in blood sugar and, you know, it literally leads to poor health in so many different ways because your body has already shut off its or shut down um, to a low level, its digestive functions. Melatonin, the sleep hormone, not only tells your brain that it's time to get sleepy, it tells your entire digestive system that, hey, it's time to switch to repair and renewal. So what do you do when you start to eat late in the night is that you kind of shortchange that process. And just like we feel jet lagged and exhausted when we've gotten a poor night's sleep, our gut feels the same way when you're eating super late into the night. And this you know, this goes beyond fasting. This is about changing our life so that, that it matches circadian rhythms a little bit better. Um, but part of that is eating and part of that is getting natural light. So when you get up in the morning, maybe you spend a couple of minutes getting some natural light um, and, you know, doing a workout maybe, uh, and then breaking your fast, maybe eating breakfast after that. I love it. Yeah. Great advice. I think, you know, I think just to take the pressure off everybody, as Dr. Amy's saying here is it's like fasting could be maybe you wait an extra two hours in the morning, you eat breakfast at nine o'clock and then you eat lunch at noon. You, then you try and eat an early dinner, like five o'clock, you know? And, yeah. and, you know, so, so I, I think that there are ways to do this to sort of continue to give your body more rest. And, you know, I'm a big fan of Chinese medicine. They've got a great circadian clock you can look at. And when you look at that clock, you'll see, that around that 9 a.m., I think it's uh, 9 a.m. to 11 or 7 to 9, but around that morning time period is when your digestive system is the strongest and when your body can handle the most food. But as the evening goes on, your liver and gall, and even the macronutrients nutrient, you eat. So at night, you should be eating more, you should do more carbs in the morning, but then more fat and protein at night because your gallbladder and liver are stronger in the evening and you shouldn't do hardly any carbs at, at all at night anyway. So it's cool. People yeah. can Google search or look at, uh, TCM body clock or circadian clock. It's pretty yeah. cool. Just uh, verifying exactly what Dr. Amy here is saying. And this can be so important for energy as well. I know that I've read uh, articles on your site, Dr. Amy, where you really got into natural ways to support energy. Can you talk to me when you have a patient come in and they're just, their energy is sort of tanked. Talk to me. I mean, you can include fasting in there, but are there any specific foods you recommend or you tell them not to eat any supplements, any lifestyle mm -hmm. things that really, because I think so many people today are struggling with those low energy levels, whether it be a thyroid or adrenal issue, or just generally just, you know, they, they just, uh, you know, they just want more energy. Yeah. Not only do we have an epidemic and pandemic going on with COVID, but we have a pandemic going on of fatigue and burnout. I mean, this is going hand in hand. We see with the Olympics right now. I mean, athletes are burned out. Athletes feel exhausted. And these are the pinnacle of our, um, you know, population and they're suffering. So we're doing something wrong. And um, partially it's the pressure that, you know, everyone's felt the stress that everyone's felt um, over the last year. But even before that, um, we've had a problem with fatigue and burnout in, especially in our working populations. And part of this is poor dietary habits. I mean, a, a huge part of this is poor dietary habits. Uh, we have been, unfortunately, or fortunately, we are living in a time uh, of very evolved food. And 
uh, I don't think we realize yet uh, how that's really draining our energy and our brain power and really affecting our mind gut connection. So we need to clean up the food that we eat. So that's first and foremost, uh, I talk about really taking out some of those engineered processed foods and um, really focusing on vegetables and whole foods. And that's something that's so simple, but something that we really don't do enough of the sugar content in our coffee drinks, the sugar content in our sauces and our, it's, it's just out of control. You know, we need to focus on better um, diet. Second thing is, is this whole circadian rhythms piece. I think that's something that we leave on the table and it's really causing us disease, but also poor energy. So for example, you know, people are looking at computers and blue lights um, well into the evening. This is going to, they're drinking coffee well into the evening. They're eating well into the evening. So their sleep is disturbed. And then you don't get a good night's sleep. Uh, everyone, there's a huge population um, in Western world that suffers with uh, difficulty sleeping. And then you wake up and you're groggy and jet lagged because your body saw all this light at night and thought that there was a danger. So the way our brain processes bright light in the evening is it thinks it's a danger sign. Like, oh, this, this person, Josh cannot go to sleep right now because he's in imminent danger. There is a bright light. Um, someone is chasing him. Someone is, uh, he's in danger. He cannot fall asleep right now. So then you're tired, but you're wired. Um, and so we have to change our food, our circadian patterns. Um, and we need to bring in mind body medicine into the mainstream. So meditation and mindfulness is not just for yogis and people who have plenty of time. It's for every single one of us, because if we don't focus on a daily mindfulness practice, what we're going to end up with is um, needing an emergency mental health uh, break. We're going to, this is like, you know, everyone says uh, their mental health is poor and it's because we're not incorporating this in our daily culture. Um, I mean, it's weird to see people, um, you know, being outside, just, you know, looking at the sun or meditating or praying or chanting or humming or all these things that calm your nervous system down. And we need to bring that into schools, into training programs. We need to teach people, hey, here's how to manage your mind so that at the end of the day, when you're trying to unwind and go to sleep, your mind is not so busy and full of um, stress and anxiety and fear. And then you can wake up and feel rested. Yeah, so good. I think all these things are important. And so sleep, you know, is the thing I've been ta I've talked about quite often is just, it's, it's one of the biggest, the things that's most overlooked in terms of energy. I, you're going to love this. So I, this was, I used to do a call-in radio show. This was many years ago. And, um, actually I, I did the program for about, I think I want to say seven years. And, uh, and my first caller that ever called in, or is the first time I was on air, I had somebody call and ask, they said, doctor, I have low energy. I've been struggling with low energy. And I asked them what they ate. I was actually pretty impressed what they ate. You know, it was a lot of green vegetables and salmon and things. And I'm like, wow, that sounds really good. I'm like, what supplements are you taking? And they're like, I take green tea. And I'm like, wow. And then I'm like, well, how many hours do you sleep a night? And they're like four. And I'm like, well, <laughs> how could anybody, I don't care if you're eating perfectly. I don't care. Like you, 
you can't get by on four hours of sleep a night. So anyways, to your point, sleep is so, so critical for so many people. And, and it, it's when your body heals. It's when your body, those, you know, imagine your body as a battery. It's like when that thing gets pumped up. And so I love that you're saying that because obviously it's a, it's a huge deal. I'm a, I'm a sleep freak. Um, everyone in my family makes fun of me because I am very laid back and I'm a, a, even parenting. I'm pretty, um, you know, open-minded, but when it comes to sleep, because, you know, as our kids are getting older, my kids are 11 and 13, they're wanting to stay up late and, um, not get a good night's sleep, uh, and skimp on sleep. And I want to teach them the habits that I never learned. And that includes, so that means that I have to be pretty strict uh, <laughs> about bedtimes and they say all the other kids get to stay up till this time. And you make us, and I literally make them wind down around seven 30 and then maybe go to bed around eight 30. Um, and they think this is ridiculous because all their friends are up at least an hour or two past that. And, but I am such a huge believer. I turned my entire health around. And I, if I had to pick of like all the things that helped, I would say sleep was the number one thing. Yeah, um, I even, never realized. Even when I was in junior, junior high and early high school, like my dad had me like, I, I went to bed at not nine o'clock, like eight thirty. My dad had at eight fifty nine. You were in bed. I still remember this now. Like I was in bed at that time. And and by the way, I had the dad. I don't know if anybody had a dad like this. My dad would come in my room right when the clock hit seven a.m. at the latest, <laughs> and he's like, and I would get the dad talk like, uh, you're wasting the day already. Like you know, you're already an <laughs> totally. hour behind." My dad woke up at five thirty a.m. his entire life. He still does. He's seventy. 172 years old, and he's still, anyways, all that being said. So, I got good sleep too growing up because I had a great dad who yeah. you know, disciplined me in a good, healthy way. And, um, anyway, so I love so, first off, bravo to being a rock star mom as well, looking out for your kids. I love that. I mean, sleep is something that I value so much because I saw what a change it made in my life and the people I work with that. I want to teach them those good habits because um, actually, you know, for me uh, as a immigrant, like I mentioned, as an immigrant kid, there um, the the rules about sleep were very loose. Uh, there was no particular bedtime that I had. It was, um, you know, and there was no particular wake time. And I realized that I built up some bad habits, especially as I got to college and then medical school and training. And I always wondered, like, I would count and I would say, oh, I, I really want to sleep, but I, I don't want to sleep more than seven hours because I thought that if I slept more than six or seven hours, that meant I wasn't working hard enough. Mm -hmm. And I think that we all give this badge um, to people who are skimping on sleep and drinking tons of coffee and stressing out. And we say, wow, you're working so hard. That's amazing. And um, really, it was not amazing for me. And I wish that someone had said, actually, no, that's not amazing. You need to step back, get some more sleep, really work on your stress levels, uh, because at some point, it's going to catch up with you. Um, you you, you so know, I, I love studying health, but my other passion is studying leadership and people that have created, you know, success and business and agriculture and all the different types of things. And as I've read up on, I, I like watching and reading parts of biographies, but as I've started uh, reading up on people like Elon Musk, Warren Buffett, you know, in the stock market, Jeff Bezos and people like that, you know, what's interesting is they, they all, 
they all get eight hours. I mean, every single one of them, if you ask them, what are your top five keys to success? I'm serious. Sleep comes in there. Elon Musk was saying, I can't think right. He said, in fact, I wake up, I take my time. He's like, I take a shower and I just sit there and I think about my ideas first thing in the morning. Uh, Warren Buffett's like, I wake up, I take several hours. I just read the newspaper for several hours in the morning. And like, so these people, you know, we go back to Benjamin Franklin and Einstein. It's a similar thing. So Anyways, all yeah. that being said, I'm with you, especially if you want to have brain power, if you want to be successful in your health, in your business, in your life, you got to have sleep. So, so I'm, I'm with you. So, so good. I think one, one of the other things, you know, I, I've seen you talk about on your website, which I think is fantastic, is the gut and the gut brain connection. Talk to me about what are some of the practices? Are there foods? Are there supplements? Are there lifestyle things? Are there holistic treatments? What are some of the best things that you recommend that really can support people? in their gut health? And is there anything in particular that you see is really has been hazardous to people's digestive systems today? And by the way, I know when I ask a question, it's always 30 questions in one. Yeah. That's like a whole book. Yeah. Um, yeah, Answer however you like. Yeah. So I actually am working on that for my next book because I'm so fascinated by the brain gut connection. I mean, there are bacteria called psychobiotics um, that are in your gut that actually determine your mood and your mental health. And so if you transplant those bacteria um, from a person who is anxious or depressed and you transfer them into another person, that next, that new person gets anxiety and depression. And then you transfer good bacteria into the anxious and depressed person. That person loses their anxiety and depression. And this was so, this is so fascinating to me because I think we always talk about mental health as separate from physical health and mental health is all in your brain and physical health is all in your body. And now we know that this is absolutely not true. And there's a two way street. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a pathway that goes both up to your brain and down to your gut, meaning your thoughts also affects your body and what you are doing inside your body affects your thoughts. And so if you understand this connection, then all of a sudden you start realizing, wow, um, that means that everything I'm eating affects what I'm thinking. And then everything I'm thinking affects my body. And so if you have goals of optimizing your body, say you want to be fit and you want to be healthy and you want to have more energy, you really need to concentrate on this brain body connection and how can you optimize it? So there's foods or supplements, there's lifestyle practices, there's um, all kinds of things that you can do. And I want to first preface it by saying that unfortunately this brain body connection has been hijacked um, in this world that we live in. Food manufacturers have learned that our body and brain are connected and they have learned that you can manipulate this. And unfortunately for us, we don't know this because we are just eating whatever, you know, growing up or in school and birthday parties. And we didn't, we don't realize that slowly, but surely we're becoming, becoming addicted to these foods. They're controlling our thoughts. Um, it's controlling our cravings system, our dopamine system. It's controlling, you know, what we do with our time. And so this is something that I find like we have to teach people about this. So for example, if there is a hidden sugar, say you're eating something, doesn't even taste sweet, uh, but it's, you know, it's a sauce say, and you ingest it your gut bacteria can also sense sugar and your gut bacteria can sense that sugar in that 
sauce and send a signal to your brain of cravings like dopamine cravings. And so you will crave that food because of the sugar content without even knowing that it was sweet, that even knowing that there was sugar in it. And that's what I, I, I want to tell you that is a power of the brain body connection and really uh, relearning um, some of this stuff that we have uh, created since childhood. So for example, you know, the Coke and diet, you know, soda companies knew about this connection long ago. And they said in the, you know, I think it was the, the 60s, 70s, 80s, they would offer Coke at games and, you know, fun places where children would equate having a Coke with like having a good time, right? And so when you equate that, now as adults, when you want to have a good time, you're going to reach for that Coke. And you don't even realize why. It's because it's a memory, a dopamine memory, you know, it's a, it's a pathway that was created. And if you think about the times that you've been really stressed, or really happy, um, or uh, want comfort foods, think about what you reach for. And a lot of that is learned from childhood. And it's these brain gut pathways that are built. Um, and it's just so fascinating, because we can manipulate that in a good way. Also. Yeah, I love that. By the way, I love the term you've used. And I think it's a term that's uh, that we're starting to hear more. And that is psychobiotics, right? In terms of these gut bacteria uh, that actually affect the brain, right? And so anyways, I think it's so important. A lot of people don't realize this sort of connection between the gut and the brain. And again, I think, you know, the, the other thing that uh, you and I both know that we've talked about before, I'm sure, is that, uh, you know, your gut also affects your immune system. You know, one of the things that uh, you've mentioned uh, several times so far is sort of like, you know, living in a world where we're still to a degree, uh, at least what, you know, what is outlined by the CDC, they're still calling certain things a pandemic. One of the things I'd ask you and feel free to answer this however you'd like, but to me, it's absolutely crazy that we, we could be, and by the way, look at a pandemic. And I also look at things like cancer and heart disease and diabetes and autoimmune disease and how fast they're on the rise. But outside of those things that are in super high numbers, when you look at a so-called pandemic, and we're talking about that, how, 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 how important do you think it is to also at least consider food? Because this is the thing that my frustration level, I'm not going to try and just, you know, go on a rant here right now, but just to say the thing that nobody is talking about is how important food is. If we're talking about supporting immune health for thousands of years, there are medical studies showing that food supports the immune system and your gut is important as well for your immune health. And so I don't know how you feel about it, but again, for me, it's just to, to think about trying to treat any health problem without even talking about foods and herbs and these types of things. I, I, think, I think we're missing something pretty important. Yeah, I mean... That is absolutely true. Um, and unfortunately for people, um, to, you have to know that pandemics, this is, not the, this is not the last one. And the way we are moving in our world because we are so interconnected, there's various reasons, but some of which are, you know, we're so interconnected and traveling and these things spread a lot more uh, uh, faster than ever before. And then we have antibiotic resistance. And then we have all the kind of perfect storm for pandemic after pandemic after pandemic. And we know that this is not the last one. In fact, we are going to have more. And 
when I realized that, um, and I don't think a lot of people realize that, it really made me think twice about our strategies because yes, we're learning, you know, how to uh, treat this one, but are we really learning what we can do to prevent people from dying then at the next one? And are we really doing the things that we need to do to set the stage for a healthy population um, in the future? And I think the public health world is um, really just focusing on the task at hand instead of thinking about this as a a broader problem. And maybe we need to um, address our immune systems rather than just address the immediate concern. Yeah, well, I think the big thing that you run into with the whole entire medical system, again, is going back to why do we treat things the way we treat them? It's not for the benefit of the patient. It is for the benefit of it's first and foremost, it's about finances. And so we yeah. have to really, and that, that's first and foremost, is I think you need to question and you need to ask, okay, why do we treat things only in this single way, the way we treat them? Who are, the, who are, who are creating the studies? Who is funding everything? I think it's important to start there. And, 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 I, and the other thing I think is, and, and you and I probably have a little bit of a different perspective on this, and I think that's healthy and okay. And that is in terms of, you know, when you look at ancient Chinese medicine and Ayurveda and biblical medicine and Greek, every ancient form of medicine and just common sense, it's that you don't fight, you don't treat a disease to get well. You strengthen your own body and your organ systems and your body heals itself. When you have a cut on your hand, turmeric doesn't heal that. An antibiotic doesn't actually heal a cut. It protects it and keeps it from getting infected, but your body heals itself. So the ancient way of healing is all about, no, we are going to help strengthen your own body by getting good sleep, by eating good foods, by having good community and family and doing these things and allowing the body to fight these things off because God designed it to fight these things off. And so I really believe that if, if, you know, if, if we were to, instead of doing a lot of the things we were doing, which by the way, all have side effects, you can't take a medication without a side effect. You look up, you know, if you look up anything, you, you look at the nutrients that are depleted with birth control pills, with mm-hmm. blood thinners, with cholesterol drugs, which totally depletes your body of coenzyme Q10 and B12 and everything else. Like there are side effects here. And so knowing like, hey, here's the great thing. Food doesn't, you know, f- food yeah. doesn't have these side effects. And so a- again, the other thing, and, and by the way, I, I'm just very outspoken about this because I want to make sure my audience realizes this. And that is the, the, the fear that is driven by the media and anybody who is pushing any type of fear Fear creates disease in your body. It weakens your adrenal glands, according to Chinese medicine, uh, weakens your hormonal system. It puts your body in a fight or flight state. There, there's a quote in the Bible. It's, there is, uh, you know, the, essentially the opposite of fear is love. And so essentially, if you have somebody who's driving fear into you, it's a form of manipulation that is making you worse. And so all that being said, I just think it's so important for all of us to get more in a state of hope and realizing your body has amazing capacity to heal. There are things you can do. You're not powerless. I think that's been, that's the thing that I've had a hard time with Dr. Amy throughout this entire thing is that it's essentially like, you can only do this thing we say. And if we don't, you have to live in a state of fear and there's no hope versus, Hey, listen, you actually can do some things. You can eat healthier. You can get Mm -hmm. better sleep. You can go outside in the sun and get some sunshine, vitamin and vitamin D. You can do these things. So I just think we're totally missing the big picture too of what happens when you wear something over your face. What happens when people stop hugging? You talked about dopamine earlier. 
You know what happens when you hug somebody? There's a flood of dopamine and another hormone called oxytocin that supports healing in the body. So listen, and, and I know you're probably more aligned with the way that I'm thinking or very closely, but I wanted to say too, anytime we talk about, and I've, I've hardly shared very much about this on, on most of my interviews uh, as of late, but I just think it's important to remember, I just think again, that the way that we're approaching these things and, and the way that, you know, and, and the, the way that we're leaving out critical things like food is a, is a big miss. No, you, you bring up some amazing points. So here's my take on this. Um, and, you know, I try to stay out of the argument, just like you said, like fear and arguments, and it's really not worth it uh, for my personal health and for other people's health. I really feel that the problem is, is that we're taking kind of in, in Western medicine in general and public health, you take kind of a resuscitative approach, meaning the people who are on the brink of death how can you bring them back? And that's where I think that medications and vaccines and, um, you know, pro this can help the dying grandmother. I mean, I have elderly parents and I want resuscitative medicine. I want them to get the care that they need in that state, that, you know, emergency end stage, right? But then you're talking about, and a lot of us that we live in this other state where we are looking to optimize our bodies. We are not in the, knock on wood and, you know, thank God, we are not in the position of kind of end stage and um, emergency procedures. We are in the state of living our life and figuring out how to optimize that. And that part of medicine is completely missed because our whole, our whole focus is on the end stage and resuscitative care. Yeah. And it, when it, I was, yeah, I, I hear you. I think it's a great point. When I was in training, all we did was resuscitative care. I had at, like, I think I had some insane, it's, it's more than 50% of your um, internal medicine, our expertise were, on ICU medicine. These are people who are literally at the brink of death yep. and learning how to revive these people, which is so important because I want that. I want that for our, you know, elderly patients and like, you know, car accidents. And you can think of all the places where people would end up in ICU, but there was zero focus on the well or the walking, the people who were walking into your clinic for a primary care visit and how to optimize, that was up to you, you know, how, what you wanted to say to them. And there was almost no emphasis on that. So just like you're saying, that's why we end up in this situation where we're only providing advice to protect those that are most vulnerable, which is very, very important. But we have to give advice to those who are actually on the other end of things that are trying to, that could potentially optimize their health. Or well, and I think one of the dangerous health. things is when you have a 5% population and you say, we are going to actually require everybody to do something, which actually is detrimental to their health. Look at the si suicides <laughs> up, the alcoholism up, the drug abuse up, all that's happening during this time period, the jobs lost, all of the different things that have happened. You know, you start looking at, this is where TCM and ancient medicine is so different. It was so personalized. I mean, they yeah. personalized everything for every dip different population. And hey, you need this as a group. You need this as a group and everything else. And I just think it's something that, and, and I do think we're going to see this more in the future. I think personalized medicine, at least, is the future. Now, they're going to go about it the wrong way. It's probably going to be a specific drug for something rather than, hey, this <laughs> diet's right for you, unfortunately. But there, right. there, there are, we're going to see personalized vitamin and supplement companies continue yeah. to grow in, in that way as well, which those are things I am definitely very, very excited about. And, um, 
Yeah, and and I I do I do think we are going to start to see more and more of this in the future, which which those things are a good thing. I mean, we're depleting our microbiome, our gut bacteria, viruses, and pathogens that live in our gut that help our immune system. So I didn't know this until my immunology fellowship that like literally the gut bacteria, not even your own cells, but the gut bacterial um, bacteria are communicating like with the walkie talkie with your own immune system and saying, Hey, there's something that's coming, you know, we should attack it or we should quarantine it, whatever it is. And when you deplete your gut bacteria by the way you eat, by the way you live, by the foods that you, the medications you ingest, you're shortchanging that army that's there to help you. Uh, so I think that that's something, yeah, we sorely, sorely miss. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I want to encourage everybody. Uh, I want to send everybody to your website, Dr. Amy. You've got a great website. You've got some fantastic articles on your blog specifically there. You also have some great programs on fasting. And so I just want to encourage everybody, go visit Amy MD Wellness. Amy, A-M-Y-M-D-Wellness.com. Check out her blog. She recently wrote an article, Supplements for energy, for an Energy Boost, where she goes through the best supplements. She talks about a tea recipe and all the benefits. She goes through her personal health plan. She goes through circadian rhythms uh, and, uh, and, some other, and uh, again, a lot of topics. You can search <laughs> on there. She's got loads and loads and loads of fantastic articles. She's got some great programs on there as well. I want to say, Dr. Amy, thanks so much for coming on. I know I've really enjoyed and appreciate your, your, your perspective on everything, on fasting, on food, and on psychobiotics. That was a, a great thing. I don't think the audience has heard much about, which I think we're continuing to hear more of. And also excited about your new book. Talk to us about when does your new book come out? Oh, I'm still writing it now. It's okay. not even, uh, it, you know how the book cycle is. It's So my first book, I'm So Effing Tired, just came out in March. Okay. And that's available on Audible and everywhere books are sold. And um, that's a very, very great introduction to all of these topics that we talked about, gut health, circadian rhythms, um, you know, intermittent fasting, uh, mind-body connection. So check that out. And that's, you can get that, uh, the link uh, on Amazon or through my website or all of those things. And I have a free 60-day challenge that goes with that. So there's a daily email that comes for 60 days. Anybody can join at any time. You don't even have to have bought the book or anything. Um, so check that out on my site too. And thank you so, so much for having me. I have followed you over the years and I'm, um, I'm so happy to uh, finally meet you. Well, it's an honor. And again, I love to have people uh, having, having uh, you know, doctors on the show who are so knowledgeable, especially who have such a uh, incredible background that you have both on the medical side with being a double board certified physician, all the nutrition side. And I love how you're teaching people how to use food as medicine. And yeah, thanks a lot, Dr. Amy. I appreciate all your wisdom today. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode. Make sure to go to my recent Instagram post and let me know what your favorite part of the show was. Also, don't forget to follow me at Dr. Josh Axe there on Insta, where I cover the latest health trends, natural medicine, and so much more. Also, if you're loving this podcast, do me a big favor, head over to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, and leave a five-star review. Thanks so much for being on mission with me. See you next week. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed in this podcast are not medical advice and have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. 
Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. In some cases, individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein.